This is unstructured. Today, I'm really excited. I, we have an author with us, Ryan H. Walsh. Now, I believe Ryan's name came up in a previous interview with Brian Freeman. I hope, I hope you check that one out. But Ryan wrote a fantastic book. This book just goes into all kinds of craziness and bedlam and things that you would not necessarily associate with Boston in 1968. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm very well. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Hey, I'm really excited to talk to you because your book is just so unusual. It's Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. And I understand that it was inspired by an album of the same name. Yes, this totally all started with my love and some might say obsession with the, that album, Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Um, I'm from Boston and, you know, I came across that record in my early 20s when I was going through a rough time and I just loved it. It helped me out a lot. And then I flip over the back cover and there's this poem signed by Van Morrison on the back sleeve and a name drops all these local cities in Cape Cod and in Cambridge and Boston. So I, I was just, I was like, what's going on here? He's from Ireland. This makes no sense. You never hear about him living in Boston or what, what is this all about? So trying to answer that question led to a Boston magazine article that arrived in March of 2015. And a lot of people really enjoyed that. And then I started working with uh, my to-be editor at Penguin Press, Ed Park, and we just went to work brainstorming how to make it into an interesting book, not just any book. Uh, wanted to make sure it was it was also was good. That's that is interesting. Did they contact you, or did you pitch the book to um, Penguin? I mean, it's a pretty big publisher. I know, and when I tell the story. Uh, uh, it, it, I am told it, it does not usually work this way, but I was on the road with my band and we were heading to a show. We stopped for gas. I checked my email and there was an email from Ed at Penguin. And he said, I, I love that album too. I love this article. Uh, I'm sure a lot of editors are reaching out. Let's, let's talk first though. And Ed and I just hit it off. Wow. I mean, what an amazing break. I know. I, I'm well aware that that is a remarkable turn of events. <laughs> Did you ever intend to write a book at all? Uh, sure. I mean, my whole life is kind of set up to follow creativity wherever it leads me. You know, I'm in a band. I went to film school. I've always written things. So, um, you know, all of these things are kind of on my list. You know, I would love to to do one of everything or a bunch of, of a certain thing. You know, it's just, for me, it's about um, pursuing creativity. That's awesome. I, I knew you went to film school and that was one of my questions that this book really seems primed to be a documentary. There's a lot of um, historical record that you can find on YouTube, et cetera. Have you thought about doing that? I mean, I, I, I agree. I would watch it. Um, <laughs> I don't think I would make it. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of great supporting footage for sure. Um, you know, sadly, some of the people I talked to for the book have passed on since I talked to them. So, you know, that it does get harder each year that goes by. Um, but I am very flattered by the idea that people think it could be a, 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 a movie or a documentary. I think that's pretty cool. Um, but, um, 
I've heard nothing serious yet about that. I think it's a rights nightmare, music-wise, uh, to be honest. <laughs> have you heard from Van Morrison on that note, by the way? No, not directly, but, you know, there's all these bizarre... He makes... Well, first of all, like, you know, I spend the whole book chasing down the catacombs recordings, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, which is the only audio proof of what he sounded like in Boston with his Boston musicians and was the missing gap between Brown Eyed Girl and what he sounds like a week. So I spend the whole book. And then so the book comes out and a lot of people are asking me, hey, can I, I hear it? Because I eventually do hear it. And um, I couldn't really accommodate. And then um, Van Morrison just put it out one day on iTunes UK. It was a copyright preservation move, but people heard it and he took it down off sale, but it's kind of out there. Oh, wow. But things like that, yeah, so um, things like that suggest to me he's aware of the book. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I guess I guess he's eccentric. <laughs> so, yeah, people say that. Sure. So you maybe uh, never know exactly what he's thinking or what he thinks of it. You haven't been hit with lawyers, well, that, so that helps. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the two other musicians on that recording are from Boston, and they helped me immensely with the book. So they actually they heard from Van's lawyers and it was a contract to, Hey, he wants to release this. Oh. And we thought, Holy cow, this is great. He's going to do an official release and make a big deal out of it. And then just kind of dumped it online one day. It was, it was really wild. Um, but yeah, it's going back to his eccentricity. One of the things that was interesting, but also difficult. It was like every interview, he says something different about that album. Um, so it was hard to trick, track down what he actually thought of it and what was the truth. Um, is that because of like the um, the arrangements, et cetera? Because if I recall at that time, that sort of uh, all spawned out of Phil Spector and things like that, right? What what spawned from Phil Spector? Um, the over arranging of a lot of music. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean the um, wall of sound or whatever. The idea of slapping an orchestra on every pop song was definitely, um, if not invented by, but bolstered by that Phil Spector wall of sound. But to me, that's not what I hear on After Weeks. I mean, there is some beautiful string arrangements, but it's not that standard schlock they would throw on a lot of 60s pop. Right. Yeah, that was so interesting listening to that. I actually hadn't really listened to Astro Weeks prior to the book i have his live album you can't stop me now which was recorded a few years later and oh I, sure yeah i love that version of um cypress avenue yeah that was his big closer for the early 70s oh but yeah and it's just it's so awesome i like the you know callbacks and how he slows down stops and goes back and so it was really kind of interesting to hear the early earlier version of that i also appreciate another thing you know how you were obsessed with astro weeks I was obsessed with the album um, Lou Reed, New York, when oh, I was sure. 20s, in my early 20s. Yeah. Um, and it was really kind of awesome to read about the Velvet Underground and that they have such a tie to Boston. You want to talk about that a little? Sure. You know, it's another band I love and another band that um, you think, well, that that is a New York band through and through. But um, what I discovered uh, and wrote about in the book was that they – after they fired Andy Warhol as their manager, their new manager, for whatever reason, said, we're going to starve New York of live performances, and we're going to play Boston a lot. And they played Boston like, 
I think it's 60 times in three years or something. They're there all the time. And they fire Nico and John Kill in Boston, and they hire Doug Ewell in Boston. Like, all the major moves are happening in Boston and at this club called the Boston Tea Party. So it was a thrill to be able to place them in that story, too, just because I think that band is one of the best ever. Still sound futuristic to me, ahead of the curve. And just that they kind of had a part in this mysterious story I was putting together it was pretty exciting to me. Yeah, it's like Boston and Velvet Underground share that uh, a market influence on the future of music, and I, I had no idea. I mean, I know the old um, trope about the Velvet Underground, not many people bought their albums, but everyone who did started a band. That's right. That's a Brian Eno quote, and it was that, that, that Brian Eno quote was actually a Jeopardy clue the other night, if you can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they are truly mainstream. It took Lou Reed dying, right? <laughs> I guess so. But uh, yeah, and they also do something incredible in Boston in that they teach a young kid from Natick who's hanging around the club how to play guitar named Jonathan Richmond, who goes on to form the Modern Lovers and writes Roadrunner, of course. I love Jonathan Richmond and the fact that his origin story is tied up with the Velvets in Boston. I thought... It, it was all just uh, a beautiful story to put together for me. Yeah, and that's almost proto-punk in a way, isn't it? Well, the Velvet, I mean, Sister Ray is absolutely proto-punk. A lot of the Velvet tracks are. And then that first Jonathan record, sure, absolutely. It sounds punky, and it's a few. It's definitely years before all that stuff hit. Yeah, I, I really do see the association of Velvet Underground as being the uh, almost origin of punk, pre-Ramones. You would find very little argument from me on that, yeah. <laughs> Now, um, you go into an amazing character in this book. He's the counterpoint to uh, Van Morrison, I'd say. Mel Lyman. Right. The toothless if there are two main, Yeah, if there are two main characters in the book, it's Van and Mel Lyman. And they're kind of our tour guides through the year in the city. And the reason for that is, well, I was, you know, I was researching like crazy, trying to just get my hands on my arms around what it felt like in the city when Van lived here during the winter and summer of uh, 1968. And what I came upon pretty quickly in the Boston Globe archives was that there was this cult in a poor rundown part of town called Fort Hill Roxbury and a former well-known folk musician named Mel Lyman who played harmonica and uh, banjo started saying he was God and buying houses up there, and people started following him and living up there. And then they started an underground newspaper, many of the pages of which were devoted to kind of spreading the gospel of Mel. <clears throat> and um, I just saw an instant kind of dual storyline. When when the story begins, Van is in town, no one knows who he is, He's, his career's kaput, and Mel is kind of this famous uh, godhead that people are following. And then when the story ends, it's completely flipped. Van's one of the most, you know, 50 years later, Van's one of the most famous songwriters ever. And Lyman has literally disappeared. Right. And they were both searching through, searching through music for some kind of spirituality. They were both on some imprint of Warner Brothers. So I just saw, I was like, this is kind of, these two are, I don't think they ever met, but they were in the same place, and they feel like a yin and yang to me, and I think I could tell a story with them. Yeah, Mel Lyman just blows me away, because you know I, I look at the <laughs> pictures and everything, and, and and the whole cult leader phenomenon, at least Charles Manson had crazy eyes. But I'm like, first, 
saying the name, cult leader Mel with a straight face is kind of rough. What's that? Just the name Mel. Mel. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> Mel is God. You know, it just is. Right. It, it doesn't right. quite. You know, it doesn't quite flow. But I'm looking. I'm like, right. uh, people are following this guy everywhere, right. and yeah. and I mean, you wrote it's such an, a strong devotion that the cult still exists. For all intents and purposes, they do. They they're still a family, as they say. They still own a lot of that property, uh, not only in Roxbury but in Kansas and California and uh, Martha's Vineyard. Is that Lawrence, and Kansas? They, by the way, I meant to ask. I think I'd have to double check that, but I think that's where the farm is. Is that um, the injection of why there's so much hippie action in Lawrence? I wonder. Oh, I couldn't speak. I don't know. I don't know even know if we have the right city right now, just because I don't have my notes in front of me. But okay, sorry. Um, that's okay. Um, but they were the subject of a Rolling Stone expose in the early '70s that they felt very badly burned by. Rolling Stone, you know, had kind of done the Manson story, and I think thought this is where this story was headed, and you know, uh, wrote a big two-issue piece about them. And uh, they felt so burned by it, they uh, they didn't. They just swore off journalists and stopped talking to the press. They became insular, and uh, for decades they didn't really talk to the press. And for some reason, they talked to me, and they showed me inside the houses, and they gave me access, and they gave me you know the complete kit, collection of Avatar newspapers. And well, that's cool. um, have you digitized I those? Pretty, no, but a lot of I haven't. But they're Parts of them are digitized on the site that kind of documents everything Lyman did. Okay. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so I was surprised about them talking to me, but I thought um, I didn't know what they would make of the book. But when it did come out, of course, uh, they were very upset. Oh, they were. Um, oh, of course. Yes. I mean, no one's ever even put a conjecture in print about when and where Mel died. And you know, the book, of course, does feature that. Sure. Um, or if. <laughs> Or if, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, among other things. So That's interesting. That's just how that goes. You know? uh, so would you say as a whole they're relatively harmless? As far as I'm concerned, um, you know, they, they they kicked up some dust at Penguin and tried to discredit me there. Um, you know, some people would say, oh, yeah, it's not like in the old days where they would kidnap you and scare the crap out of you. <laughs> oh, wow. And then, and, then, and then some people would be like, well, I'd still watch out. You know, it's, uh, but all I can say is, um, you know, they just talk. They just talk to me. Is uh, were, were my interactions with them. Interesting. And did you? Um, I can't remember because I've been covering so much, so many different pieces of material. Did you have a tied Edgar Cayce in that too? Well, Edgar, no. Um, Edgar Cayce is related to the radio station that starts that year, WBCM. Thank you. Where the? Yeah, no problem. It's the owner of um, WBCM used to go on these uh, mystical trips literal road trips with Edgar Casey. And uh and then um he started these uh classical music stations and he thought that um Atlantis was gonna rise again out of the sea that year. <laughs> so he had no problem letting letting some hippies play their weird music overnight on the station. That's right. And that station converted formats from classical to I guess uh, pop or whatever modern pop was at the time. Free, yeah, freeform rock radio. It was not the first, but one of the first in the country, and it was so popular that you know, within a few months, there was no more classical on that station at all. You see, it's so funny. I didn't. I really didn't realize the countercultural elements of Boston at all. I mean, honestly, before your book, I had no clue. 
looking back at it, I guess it's sort of obvious because Timothy Leary wasn't all that far down the road. And right, yep. So I guess it sort of makes sense that, yeah, drugs, LSD, things like that would come out of the area. Yeah, it always struck me as funny, you know, just moving through life, I always joke around that by the time you're 30, you've accidentally seen a dozen documentaries on the 60s. <laughs> and what I've noticed was that none of them ever mentioned Boston. It was always New York, San Francisco, Chicago. And, you know, they might even cut to Leary, but they don't talk about Harvard, really. And um, so it was a surprise to me as well how weird and wild the scene here was. And so full of firsts. What was the most impactful thing you found out in this book? Impactful? Like one singular thing? I mean... That, that really well, just threw you for just a complete loop. Well, the, the idea that, that the first ever LSD hit in America took place a mile from where I'm talking to you, that was pretty shocking to me. Um, but, you know, the me and my editor, Ed Park, we set out, we were like, uh, you know, there are two major mysteries of the book is w w what happened to Mel and what do those catacomb tapes sound like? And we were like, it's a miracle if we get close to either one of those. And the fact that kind of both get solved in the book that by the time I was finished it, I, my mind was blown. I said, I can't believe it worked out this way. Yeah. Now did your editor help you? Because one thing I have to say you did masterfully is it's a sprawling book. I mean, it goes all over the map. Right. And right. You did somehow manage to keep the through line. I, I guess you were using, um, I'd say van and Mel as almost gravity to kind of keep yep. things going. That's right. Yeah. How how did you come up with this this structure and 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 wrap your arms around all this? I think it was just about rule making. You know, I think restrictions can benefit creativity. So when you know, uh, I one of the first rules was okay, every story has to have a significant anchor in the city of Boston in the year 1968. It can go to other years, it can go to other cities, but it has to have an important moment that hits both those things. And then it was about, you know, choosing stories about, um, uh, music, uh, rose to the top of the list. Um, people confusing reality with various fictions was an important theme I wanted to pursue. Um, you know, spirituality, trying to, uh, the occult. It was just about choosing the things that I thought were the most interesting and then applying these rules to them and hoping it would work. There was, you know, there was no guarantee. It was kind of, <laughs> it's funny. I feel like you wrote this book as a musician. And by that, I mean, because there's so many subjects, it's almost like songs that are put together in an album. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that was somehow how my brain was wired to work on things by now. Cause if I've done more than anything, it's album. Yeah, I just I just thought of that structure because it, it it's like a concept album in a book. How has this um, reflected for your band and what you're doing now? Has it has it shaped your music at all? Well, it's um, we did a fun project where we we did create the soundtrack for the audiobook. Um, when I talked to Penguin, I was like, "What music are you going to use for the audiobook?" And they said, "Oh, well, you know, there's just kind of this bank of orchestral music we can start it with." I was like, "Well, this is a this is a music book. It should have some interesting music in the audio version." So we recorded a bunch of instrumental music 
and they interspersed it between each chapter, and I thought it worked out terrific. And it was fun to do. We're a band known for our lyrics a lot, so to make an instrumental album was fun. And then when we were finished, we, you know, about five minutes appears in the audiobook, but we had made an hour of music. So this fall, we put that out uh, as a standalone instrumental album. So. I'll have to check that out because I did read the audiobook. Oh, cool. Yeah, that music is us. We made that. Yeah. Oh, awesome. No, I, I want to check out that album too. Now, your band is Hallelujah the Hills, correct? That's right. Okay. And what, what style is it? It sounded kind of, um, well, similar to uh, Jonathan. I forget his name. I'm sure there's some, <laughs> yeah, could be some influence there. I mean, um, we've been around for 13 years and we tr- try to never make the same record. So we sound a couple different ways. Um, but it's like, it's, uh, I would say it's melodic, um, anthemic songwriting on top of, uh, you know, a lot of guitars usually. Sometimes there's some strings, trumpet, uh, synth, bass. Um, we really enjoy doing it, and we um, we work on a new record that we'll record in March right now. Cool. So you have the yeah. paperback coming out in March, and a new album coming out in March. Well, no, we'll record it in March. Uh, oh, okay, come out sorry. in the summer. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a busy year for you. Now you've written a really successful book. And what's next? Are you thinking about writing another? Are you exploring anything? Sure. Yeah, I'm exploring a bunch of different ideas. It's not. Um, I think you know it would be easy for me to pick a city in a year and try to do the trick again. I think any uh, the, any publisher might it might be an easy thing to get a deal for, but I'm pretty uninterested in that. I think if there's a reason the book works, it's because I was genu- genuinely obsessed with these topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's going to be a nonfiction book, I have to find that right topic that I am legitimately that engrossed in. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, fiction ideas, screenplay ideas, but I'm not, um, racing on any one project besides the, that new Hills record right now. Well, cool. And I mean, it is a, a difficult book to follow up. How long did it take you to actually write it? Was it the full two years since, or? three years since 2015 well basically um um the article came out and then the article was part of the proposal which was that and another chapter and then once i signed the deal i think a year and a half was on the clock so it was a compressed time period it was if i could do it again i would take more time but we wanted it to come out during the 50th anniversary of the year we were talking about sure sure much more impactful and but i'm just thinking that you interviewed all these people and it sounds like you went all over the place too um were you kind of uh putting in with the tour in demand wait, wait repeat that question it sounds like you traveled a good bit when you were interviewing as well were you touring with the band at the same time and kind of oh no no um you know i i would go to new york and i would travel all around new england but other than that it was uh uh, probably a phone call interview, you know? Okay, okay. Yeah, that would be it would be really interesting to hear the behind the scenes on some of that stuff. That that could be something you could consider doing. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, um, it's, uh, you know, we tried to balance that element of me actually in the book to be a tasteful amount because Ed and I both agreed, you know, that can get out of hand quickly where suddenly the writer's too much of a character in a nonfiction book, you know? But there are little bits of, well, here's how difficult it was to get in the uh, room with Peter Wolf, and, you know, because uh, that was just too interesting not to talk about oh, that kind of stuff. No, I, I like that. I, I think that you helped um, 
color it well, and that gave it a bit of a travelogy quality. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So definitely it wasn't overbearing, and it was always about your impressions and experience of the other person. So I never really felt like it was talking about you. It was just trying mm-hmm. to help me uh, as a reader um, understand how I might react to Peter Wolf or how I might react to this person to whom right. I'm speaking. Like um, uh, your your famous um, mobster guy. Oh, yeah, sure. Carmine, who who himself passed away a few months after that interview. It's oh, too bad. Yeah, but, uh, you know, that was a crazy day <laughs> to go to his house. For instance, it was like one of the few interviews I brought someone with me. Uh, like, well, I'm going to see a mobster. Maybe I bring somebody. <laughs> but you know, when, it, <laughs> when but then when you get there, it's just an old, you know, it's an old elderly man, right. and uh, he had a pile of sealed boxes of um, heroes of Italian American baseball, like fifty hmm. sealed baseball card set. And when we left, he gave us each one. He's like, here you go, boys. <laughs> oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe they fell off a truck. I don't know. Which, which interview, out of curiosity, you know, I asked about when the book impacted you. Were there any interviews that really stood out and, you know, you kind of were touched by? Touched by each short, certainly. When I finally did my in-person interview with producer of Astro Week, Lewis Merenstein, that was something else because he was he doesn't really do interviews and he was in a wheelchair he's very frail i i was i had to lean in like five inches from his face to hear him Hmm. so it was already intimate and and i really thought he was so um everything he said was just had this great perspective but also you know his sadness over how it all broke down you know how he got fired from the whole operation during the next record moon dance and he still had sadness over how it went down and how beautiful Astral Weeks was, and and was it worth the pain that came after it? So that one sticks out. And then when I finally get to talk to Jesse Benton, Lyman's uh, ex-wife, mm. that was pretty intense for me, just just because I'd been wanting to talk to her for so long. And at that point, I felt I knew how Lyman did die, and I had to ask her about it. And um, when I asked that question, her pause seemed like, you know, her silence seemed to go on for minutes. It's probably only 10 seconds, but... Sure. Yeah. Wow. That had to be odd. <laughs> You're going in speaking to cult members. I, I'm sure you just didn't know what to think. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Like, you know, I say it in the book. I say, listen, most of the conversations with these people were fairly normal. So is it, A, that they were... Uh, kind of faking being nuts in the 60s or B, they were nuts and now they're they're reformed or C, they're still nuts and they're putting on an act. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't tell which of those three it was. And um, so, you know, if if you look at the kind of character of things they complained to Penguin about the book mm-hmm. regarding me, you know, some things were objections to facts but the book was pretty well fact-checked and looked, you know, lawyered, looked at by a lawyer as well. So, but, but what struck me was so many of the things were just, anytime I didn't speak reverently about Mel in the book, they took objection to that. So I guess that speaks to that old mindset. How do you feel about Mel? I seemed, well, I mean, I'm interested in him, but uh, it seemed to me like he was a master manipulator. Um, just someone who understood psychology and 
and they had a vested interest in controlling people. Um, uh, he's kind of like a zealot like figure cause he shows up when, you know, Dylan goes electric. He's there, you know, BCN first goes on the air. He's involved there, you know? Um, so, uh, definitely an anti-hero or even a villain in the book for sure. Yeah. He just, it seems so remarkable that this guy sways people. I guess he's sort of like Charles Manson in that regard where, um, I've read about Charles being interviewed by FBI agent saying, Hey, I'm not that big of a guy, so I have to find other ways to defend myself or get people to do things. Right. Yeah. You can't underestimate like people who are just very charismatic and know how to manipulate people. Um, also someone told me, you know, uh, if you were confused about what to do with your life and a lot of people, young people in the, late sixties were a cult or a guru would, would take care of that problem for you. You wouldn't have to worry about that anymore. They, you know, just surrender some free will to them. And a lot of these things that are plaguing your mind all day go away. Well, and it sounded like, or that he fulfilled all the uh, proper cult leader things like, uh, betting a bunch of wives or a bunch of members right. or having a ton of kids. Right. Yes. <laughs> Yep, musician. It's it's good to be a king, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's just it's it's wild to me that literally there is no death certificate for this man. For all intents and purposes, he is a missing person. Yeah, that that has to be troublesome because he could have been murdered. That's very true. Yep. Um, is it Great. such a case that really society has no no need for the guy so much we just flat out don't care? Well, the, yeah, that's what was interesting to me. I, I wondered if maybe the book would spark some official to do something. Um, but um, by by any by all visible measures to me, uh, it's just going to be left that way, which is so weird, very deeply weird. Yeah, that you were right though. That that does trouble me, especially that you bring it up. It's like, well, wait a minute. Don't we care if somebody's dead or not dead or what? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's whole shows about. There's dozens of successful TV shows just about figuring these mis- kind of mysteries out. So it's weird when you encounter one where people are like, "Yeah, we'll leave that one a mystery." <laughs> Oh, maybe he's chilling with Jim Morrison in Paris. What's that? Maybe oh, yeah, yeah. He's you know the like, rumor about you know, Jim. Hold it off. Yep. <laughs> Just living it up. Well, perfect. Now, Ryan, thank you so much for this book. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for reading it. Oh, definitely. I highly recommend it. And what do we have coming next? You've got the album, things like that. Yeah, one, uh, if your listeners want to uh, follow me on Twitter, I'm at uh, Jahills, J-A-H-H-I-L-L-S. Uh, the book's website is astralweeks.net, and uh, the band can be found at hallelujahthehills.com. Oh, perfect, and I believe you do have your stuff on Apple Music and Spotify, things like that? Oh, yeah, everywhere you can listen to music, for sure. Well, I'll definitely be checking it out, and I encourage everyone to do so as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you.
Hey there, thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players, and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com, and I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing, here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. Hayes? A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing the diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. podcast fans i'm rachel host of we're all mad here a new podcast about the history of mental health do you love history do you love creepy stories of abandoned hospitals how about questionable medical procedures we're covering it all not only will we sneak around in old asylums we'll talk about the patients that stayed there and what their lives were like we're covering disorders, cures, and living life with mental illness. So come join us on We're All Mad Here at allmadpod.com because the history of mental illness is insane.